0: Welcome to Ink's The Founder's Project with Alexa von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnBest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet John Berkowitz, the founder and CEO of OJO. An industry-leading real estate technology company that partners with the top real estate teams and agents to deliver value for millions of consumers on its platform. John founded Ojo in 2015 and has since raised more than 140 million dollars in venture capital. Ojo has been named to the Deloitte Tech Fast 500 and the Inc. 5000. John has received numerous leadership accolades, including Ernst Young Entrepreneur of the Year and Austin Business Journal Company and CEO of the Year. Prior to Ojo. John co-founded Yodel, an online marketing leader for small businesses. He scaled Yodel to more than 50,000 small business customers and in 2016 successfully sold to web.com for about $350 million in an all-cash transaction. John holds a BA from George Washington University and lives in Austin. And with that, let's welcome John. John, I'm so happy to have you here today. Let's go to the beginning. In plain English, what's Ojo in your own words and take us back to how you came up with the idea and that founding story back in 2015 when you founded Ojo.
1: So what Ojo is today is a platform that serves consumers and real estate agents and real estate teams in the broader residential real estate space. For consumers, it's a platform that helps them find homes, get connected to the people and financing solutions needed to actually sell or buy the homes and provides tools to help them own the home. And so we exist for consumers to help them be more efficient in the home journey. Very similar for agents and teams, we exist to allow them to more efficiently serve uh, more consumers uh, more often. And so we're, we're a platform kind of connecting consumers and the professionals needed to navigate the complex and sometimes painful real estate journey.
0: So, John, let's go back to the beginning. What was that, like, core pain point? And then walk us through the product experience and how you imagined and envisioned that.
1: Yeah, so over seven years, you can imagine it's changed. First, when we started the company, there was no concept of real estate whatsoever. The pain point that launched Ojo was personalization at scale. We had been thinking about the... Rise of kind of machine learning and different technologies, and what they could do to help a consumer make better decisions at scale. Our feeling was as consumers, we were getting generic content passed to us, and we were having to sort through very inefficiently lots of content. And we wanted to provide a better experience for that. And we initially envisioned apps and different technologies, location tracking devices to solve those problems. And rather than going and building a robust product, we said, let's go and test our theses around these pain points with consumers. And so in 2015, we launched a very simple decision tree chat bot to engage with consumers. And we did it as a research project. So we just started texting with consumers, asking them questions under a product known as bot which was original in 2015. And the idea was never to play in that space. We were just using that as an effective way to find out information on how consumers were thinking and solving problems. And in in that test, we learned a big opportunity, which is the level of engagement that consumers will have with that more personalized communication channel was unlike anything we had seen in in kind of at-scale marketing and consumer solutions prior. And so we pivoted the entire idea of the business. We said, oh, we need to go do that. We need to go lean into that space where, for whatever reason, a consumer will engage with this technology more so than they would a human being. If I had just called them and asked them questions, it would have been super awkward. But for whatever reason, when the machine was asking them, they were giving us a lot of information. And so we moved into that space we invented technology in that space, in this engaging with consumers one-on-one at scale. And then as we wanted to grow it, we said we need to go and pick one area to go very deep in. Because just generically asking questions and answering them isn't going to add any value. So we need a vertical. We went through an exercise around all of the different industries that this could be interesting in. And we scored them based on the size of the consumer needs, size of the market, a few different qualifications, and real estate ended up bubbling up to the top. Why? Because essentially every American has some interaction in real estate every year, dream of a home, actually buy a home, search for a home, live in a home. It is a very long, complicated process. And this idea of the hell zone, which we stumbled into, is really pronounced in it. The idea of the hell zone is you walk into a clothing store, salesperson says, May I help you? You say no. And then 30 seconds later, you look for that salesperson. There is this human interaction of not wanting to engage with a salesperson before you really feel like you're ready to buy. The bigger the purchase, the longer the consumer thinks they're ready to buy. And so what we realized is whereas in Macy's, the hell zone is 30 seconds, in real estate, it's a year and a half. And that creates this disconnect where you don't have expert advice supporting the consumers and therefore there's lots of breakage. And that launched Dojo.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how AI has been an early fabric of the company?
1: AI was, was one part in the 2015, 2016, a marketing... There's three pillars of AI in our business that do, not all didn't need to be connected. Uh, one was the marketing angle, which was how do you get on stage, you know, get interest, convince investors you're different. That was real, and we leaned into it. It wasn't the reason it was there, but it was real. Then there was the, the value proposition to a consumer. Because of this hell zone concept, consumers needed to know that we were a technology, not a person, to get the engagement. And then there was the actual tool of machine learning to solve the problem. How do you have millions of conversations simultaneously at scale? All three were were kind of fundamental in the beginning. What's interesting is as we've evolved, the first two really are not in the picture. We don't exist and tell consumers every day, we're a technology, just engage with us. We weave technology and humans pretty evenly throughout the experience we don't lean into just talk to a machine we don't at all tell investors or stand on stages and talk about ai because candidly right now i think we're in a a newfound hype cycle but the way we solve problems we will a lot of times use humans because it's more efficient and better consumer experience and we can scale it And a lot of times lean heavily on complex algorithms to determine what to do next, use machine learning and different kind of more, I would say, rudimentary AI to solve problems. But it is a tool in our business used when it makes sense and zero pressure on anybody to use it when it does not.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what what seems so obvious to you if we fast forward five to 10 years?
1: It's really interesting. On one hand, the awareness now of ChatGPT and AI is like my mom knows about it. We've now brought in the awareness, which now that we've brought in the awareness, I think you'll brought in the acceptance and that's gonna accelerate the use of them. My thesis was in 2020 was what these complex deep algorithms do is allow you to make better decisions faster. And they also can solve problems like content creation and doing human tasks faster. And when you see that three years ago, you're like, oh, this is going to be everywhere. I think now in the next two years, I actually don't think much is going to change. I really don't. I think real estate agents will use it to write blogs better. So LinkedIn might be the place you see the most chat GPT actual change in the world or kind of content creation. I think some businesses will do it. People will have better chatbots and things like that. Where I think you will see actual changes is in a few years when we legitimately let the machine do the complete set of human tasks. Because the ability is there now. What we're doing right now could be 100% machine. That's scary, right? We have the technology now to replicate you and I digitally, and we have the technology now to replicate all of the content that we would say. And you can create a lot of versions of this and then score it and figure out what's the best. They will create artificial live podcast television shows. That'll happen, I believe, in 23. And then it's going to be really interesting how we engage with authentic content in the digital world when it's really hard to separate how much is this a machine just telling me what I want to see versus the truth. There are very few industries that don't have less than 50% of the jobs be much more automatable when you have the capability of the algorithms today. I think how we regulate them and how much we trust them is the real headwind. Because the technology is here, now regulation and trust are the only barriers.
0: What are your predictions in real estate more broadly? What's obvious to you about where PropTech is headed over the next five to ten years?
1: When I look back, I think it is one of the more interesting industries when you think about innovation and change. Because the normal internet cycle that hit every other industry from buying shoes to healthcare and everywhere else, somewhat skipped over real estate. Because right when the innovation cycle was going, 2007 happened. And this industry was the cause of the global recession. Right? And so... A lot of the innovation you saw in other categories didn't happen here. All the money left. Then the next time the money came in that would drive innovation, it came in free money times. And so the majority of innovation over the last six years has been about how do you solve the financial headwinds in this industry with free money. Now that the free money is gone, most of those models are gone. So we basically had two five to eight-year innovation cycles that have been tossed out. And it's why the biggest company in this space is Zillow, which is a real estate newspaper. Like that's the biggest innovation we have. That's the pessimist in me. The optimist says we are upon the biggest cycle of innovation this industry has ever had because we have real companies who are thinking about sustainable innovations who understand the consumer pain points with better technology than we've ever had before. I think you will see more personalization. You and I, like in the grand scheme of the world, we are way more similar than different, but how you and I will interact in real estate should be treated infinitely different, but it won't be. I think that the technology and innovation is going to be about really customizing the experience on a continuous basis for you and I. I think you'll have a lot of innovation in partial home ownership. This whole idea of all of an American's net worth is tied up in the home. And then you have all of this private equity money, long real estate. The models that say that there is a gray area and we can do that together, I think will prevail and are good for consumers and good financial. So I think partial ownership will be good. And then I think you will see a lot of more sustainable financial innovation.
0: Teach us how you think of build versus buy and what makes an acquisition super successful?
1: I believe if you say, what are one or two things that's made this company as successful as it has been? The the first one is people. The second is the pragmatic approach to problem solving, which is really egolessly and open-minded saying, for any problem, we will build, buy, or partner. We have legitimate, significant patents in AI. We have huge partnerships of publicly traded companies, and we've bought four companies prior to Series D, which is fairly unheard of. And I think what is more unique than any one of those, it's the fact that we've actually done all three, because normally it's like, oh, everything's built here, or everything's bought, we're just a roll up, or we partner on everything. We have looked at it and said, what is the most effective way to solve the problem? And to do that, you need to basically teach the company to be egoless and say, it does not matter. If there's another company out there that's beating us, let's figure out how to either partner or buy them, whichever is better. And if the problem isn't solved, no matter how hard it is, go solve the problem. And it's allowed us to leap forward on the what makes acquisitions successful. I think we... Every person, you know, this is culture. You need to figure it out. I think bigger than culture potentially is alignment on goals and what you want. One thing we've been very good at is of course we evaluate the people. We say, are they talented? Are they going to be able to contribute in the broader mission? And then when you're talking to founders and management really actually trying to understand what they want. No different than when you're hiring an employee. Are you talented? Can you help me? And does my product and where I'm going help you? You have to think about that in acquisitions. Because if you don't, what you end up doing is, sounds really good, cultures are good, but then they start working against each other and it's not a multiplication equation, which is what great acquisitions are. That's where my obsession's been. I very early can tell, is the culture going to fit? Are the founders going to fit? Are we like going to get along? Which, for my own sanity, is important to me. I've realized what they actually want, not, it's, not that it's wrong what they want, but isn't what, where we're going. I have had those moments where I play out, what if I decided to do this? What if you give me your company and all your people, and tomorrow afternoon – I decide that we should buy your biggest competitor or sell to the company you hate. I think that understanding what is really important to leadership when you're buying a company or when you're selling your company to somebody else is really important.
0: And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on For Starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. I want to go back uh, to you now, John. You know, you grew up in New Haven. If you think about your entrepreneurial spirit, your success as an entrepreneur, is there anything that your parents did or your family did when you were growing up that you kind of attribute to being a critical element of your success?
1: One thing is you don't realize it until you leave, but New Haven is a crazy entrepreneurial place, historically, and we have all of these Inventions, the first phone book, the frisbee, the lollipop. These are things that you learn as a kid and you see it all around. You're just like, oh, it's the center of the world. And it's not the biggest city in the world and it's got all these problems, but there's this idea of solving problems that you grow up around in New Haven that I think spurs a lot of entrepreneurship. My father owned a small commercial construction company and so I was a part of business, good, bad or ugly, in every part of my life, right, Christmas and Hanukkah, we were we were dual trackers uh, in the religious scene. I understood the economy based on what presents we got, based on the f- how much my family business fluctuated in success. I understood legal problems and employee problems based on just hearing my dad on the phone continuously. I try to emulate the parenting best practice that. I'm sure it was accidental, and not intentional, but both of my parents really, really made me feel like I was special and loved the crap out of me and had zero expectation of what I would do in the world. I always knew no matter what, my parents are gonna think I'm awesome. And that lack of pressure is, I think, fairly important in my journey.
0: Back to just since we're on the topic of parenting, you said something that I really love, really special, that you think of Ojo like a family business, considering your wife and four sons as an extension of your executive team. Tell us what you mean by that. I just love that mindset because the truth is your family is in the business. They're making sacrifices for you to run the business.
1: This whole like uh, work-life balance thing is just not a real thing. Like you, you live a life and there's multiple components of it. And to me, one, I'm blessed that I have very smart family. Uh, and so, my wife smarter than me. My twin, fifteen year olds, smarter than me. We'll, we'll find out if the three, the three and a half year old and the seven year old are. Right now, I have more wisdom. They will. They will also likely be much smarter than me. But I am surrounded by just very intelligent people who are good at decision making, and so. They've been around longer than everybody besides my my co-founder on the company, Jeremy, and they know me better than anybody else. So they're really good sounding boards. But also, they have to deal with the weight of the company. The scary days, the stressful days, those come home. It's physically impossible not to. And so if they're not part of the celebration and they're not riding the journey with you, then, then I just think it's a shame And so I just realized they're part of the team. They think about decisions. They're a part of those decisions. Things that extremely confidential NDAs with the world's biggest private equity companies and publicly traded companies that only a small portion of my team can know about, I will go and sit with my twin 15-year-olds and my wife and fully unpack. Uh, It's probably good for them. I'm sure it's really annoying at times. And it's definitely good for Ojo.
0: I want to go back. You sold Yodel. It was acquired in 2016. Why the heck did you jump back in the ring? You know, how did you think about wanting to do it all over again, knowing you obviously didn't have to? And how did you think about maybe rules or really important lessons that you brought with you?
1: One, um, when I knew we were selling Yodel is when I started working on Ojo. So there was a period of time fully disclosed to everybody on both sides, where I had employees in both companies. I had, you know, at the end of Ojo, whatever, end of Yodel, 100 employees in my direct org. When we made the decision not to go public and go own it ourselves, I knew I just needed to go do it on my own again. And so I was already in ideation mode and had actually started it pre-Yodel selling. And so that is dumb luck. Because had I not had had Ojo the day that we sold Yodel, I would have been in a extremely dark spot. Because you build for a decade, you expect all these things. And then when it happens, my experience uh, was that it wasn't what I expected. You know, I had little things like my only email address was john at yodel.com. Ojo was nothing at this point. We just were early ideation and very much in stealth mode. John Berkowitz wasn't really a person because my entire like adult years was John, the founder of Yodel. And what I thought would be delivered on exit was mostly just like something being taken versus giving. I remember how dark that evening was. The thing I did is I went to work the next day at Ojo and put everything into it and just said, I got to go rebuild that. And if I didn't have that, I very sincerely, without my family and Ojo, it, I think I I would have been in uh, danger. That's how bad and dark the feeling of exit was uh, for me. I am a person that I think derives energy from solving problems and and building. And if I don't have those, it's not good for me.
0: You have this quote, which I passionately agree with. You say there's a danger of founders marching towards an exit instead of marching to solve a problem. But from your point of view, I know you agree with that deeply, but why? Yeah, why? Help people understand why
1: what's really interesting is my realization around it was from Yodel. When we started Yodel, there wasn't like, oh, we're going to go get rich. it was it was a oh, cool. We're sons of small business owners. There's this massive unsolved space on the internet. They're spending money in the yellow pages. We want to get them in the internet. None of it was, oh, we are going to go get rich. And somewhere in the year two of Yodel, it was less about solving a problem, the pride of the customers, more about like march up the ink list, smoke the competition on revenue, go add another 10,000 customers. So it really became... March on these metrics, which we're all pacing towards. We're going to take this company public and it's going to be a massive success. And I don't know when it changed, but at some point in there and change. And for a while, that was a very focused goal that drove growth. But at the dis- point that we decided not to go public, we took out the single driving mission of the company. And that was the single biggest mistake in the history of the company because we were going to go public. We all told the whole company we're going to go public. We're excited about it. We made a decision, hindsight, the wrong decision in my opinion, not to go public, but it was a decision that any company should be able to make. What we miscalculated was that all of us for a long period of time had been marching to that day, not to the, let's just build a great lasting company. And we lost our way after that. We sold as very successful sale, investors and founders and everybody made a lot of money, but- Today, Yodel's not around. It's been chopped up, cut into pieces. And I think what ends up happening is if you are outcome driven, you don't build sustainable value in the world. And that to me is a real risk because if you just build value, then you can do it forever and you can choose when you get off the boat on your own time.
0: Last question I want to ask, then we're going to move to the quickfire round. Yeah the stress is real. How did you get better at those? Pay it forward to everybody else listening. What are your tricks, tips, et cetera, when you're dealing with truly a moment that you're like extremely overwhelmed?
1: Yeah. I do better in an emergency. This is something I've learned about myself. A lot of times in a business, you're in an emergency, (laughs) in a cash losing new startup, right? And so I think there's actually times where I do better. But when you go home and the emergency is done, then you just have the weight of the emergency and that stress. I wouldn't, this is not a, I I feel a little insecure making recommendations on it because I don't think I'm very good at this. I'll tell you the reality. A, my wife would say, he sucks at it. He's stressed at nighttime. Uh, A characteristic of my personality is I go home, I spend a lot of time regretting mistakes during the day and being really scared, really scared of the cost of those mistakes. And it makes for a like crappy go-to-bed experience. I'm sure there's 50 self-help books where it tell me there's a better practice than that. But the next morning, no matter what happened the day before, I wake up and I'm like, okay, fresh start. We have to go solve it. There is no other choice. And, and that is no matter what the day is, no matter what the problem is or happened the day before, I have wired my brain, either just who I am or by certain, you know, evolution to when I wake up tomorrow morning, I am going to be in solution problem-solving mode. And my acceptance of failure is a like, it cannot happen. It is a, in my, like the way I am tied to my business, it's life or death. And when it's life or death and you have a family, you figure out a solution.
0: John, I'm gonna to move to the quick fire round. First thing that comes to your mind, super fast answers, first thing, ready? Yes. Favorite interview question. Uh,
1: what's your superpower? Truly understanding what someone's most particular set of skills are that make them special is really important. And when you hire people with superpowers, you have to realize they also have major weaknesses. So you got to figure that out too.
0: I love it. A quote you live by, a quote of any kind.
1: Ted Lasso, use of uh, Walt Whitman's uh, Stay Curious.
0: Your biggest pinch me moment to date in your career.
1: I heard a story about a... Uh, a father of two kids in Hawaii that in the beginning of pandemic was priced out of a house because he because um, the market was so crazy as everybody ran from California to Hawaii. And so he was living in his car and he read an article about how actually in Hawaii it was easier to buy a home than rent a house. And so he went online, he ended up on our platform Through technology and the combination of people, we introduced him to somebody, and that agent moved the universe for this guy. And by Christmas, he owned his first home. Uh, Taking that home to my family and saying, That's what we do, was one of the more proud moments in my career.
0: Um, A book that you, that like really left a dent on you
1: Oh, the Places You Will Go by Dr. Seuss.
0: Last question. Um, what do you hold as sacred?
1: Trying to understand the truth of everything. People is a massive part. So quality of talent, diverse thinking, diversity are all sacred to me. But the kind of underlying thing that I am seeking constantly on myself, the business, the people, the problems we're solving, our customers, our partners, is the truth because it's not easy to find, and it is, I think, the single biggest thing that holds someone in a company from success is if they don't have full handle on the truth
0: john first of all i'm so grateful that we got to be an investor in your journey we're so happy to support you everybody out there uh i just want to say if you want to learn more please check out ojo.com. and john thank you so much for joining us we're rooting for you everybody you can join us next week for ink the founders project with Lex von Tobel. thank you
1: you're an inspiring rock star and i appreciate you having me thank you so much